You're listening to audio from Park Church. More info and resources are online at parkchurch.org. Take care. Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 1 through 12. And as a quick note, if anybody does not have a Bible that does not have one at home and would like to take one with them, feel free to take that one that's in the pew back behind you. So again, it's Matthew, chapter 16, 1 through 12. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it'll be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you. Good morning, Park Church. Good to see you. You guys are way more awake than the last group. You guys, wow. That was awesome listening to you, getting to know the people around you. So glad you're here this morning. My name is Chris, one of the pastors here. Uh, at Park, and in just a minute, we are going to dive into that passage, uh, Matthew 16, uh, 1 to 12. So if you would, make sure you hold your place there and your copy of the scriptures, and we're going to get into all of that in just a minute. But before we do that, I just want to give you a little update on my health. Um, a number of you know for uh, back in November that I went in, think, into an urgent care near my house thinking that I had pneumonia, coming out, finding out that I was in heart failure. Not a good day. Um, and uh, for the next six days, I was in the hospital. And then since then, about three months ago, almost four months now, uh, lots of medication, lots of diet changes, uh, exercise, that sort of thing, hoping that those would kind of change my heart, help my heart heal up. Um, I let everybody know last, a week ago, Friday, or a week ago, uh, Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, that I was going in a week ago Friday for another echocardiogram, which basically uh, is how they measure the ejection fraction of your heart, which is your left ventricle, and that's the part of your heart that pumps blood through your body. Normally, from uh, the average kind of ejection fraction there is like 50 to 70% of the blood that's in the heart. Some of you doctors are geeking out right now, and I'm totally not saying it right, I'm sure. But uh, uh, anyway, so like at any, any, any time it pumps, it should be pumping anywhere between 50 to 70% of the blood that's in the heart. Mine was only pumping 10%. 
And so, like I said on Ash Wednesday, um, I am not a doctor, but I know that 10% is not far from 0%. And that's not good. And so, over the, over the, the months, I've been doing what I could. And so many of you have been praying. So I just want to thank you. So many of you have been praying. Every Sunday, you're telling me you're praying for me. You're asking how I'm doing. I'm like, I don't know. I think I feel better. Well, finally, a week ago, Friday, went in and um, had the echocardiogram in this past Tuesday, found out the results. And my ejection fraction went from 10% to 50 to 55%. So God gets all the praise, all the glory. Uh, and thank you so much for your prayer. So basically I am no longer in heart failure. So that's amazing. So I celebrated that night with a pizza. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I have a wife who would not let me do that. So wanted to so badly. Um, but anyway, so thank you so much for your prayer. Uh, there's still room to go. Obviously I'm at the very bottom end of, nor of like healthy normal, but I'll take it. Um, and the doctor was super excited that he really thought that there's room, the way my heart's responding, it could continue to get better. So thank you very much. Because the last time I met with him, he told me that I'm probably gonna need to get a defibrillator put in because your heart could just stop. So that was a nice change uh, for once. So thank you for your prayers. I really, really, really do appreciate it. And God absolutely gets all the praise for that. So thank you. All right, enough about me. Let's get into God's word. We're gonna be in Matthew 16. Uh, let's pray together and ask for God to move and work and speak to us as we open up his word. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that as your people, we can gather in this place. This is holy ground because your spirit is here. Um, heaven has truly come to earth. And so we are so thankful for that, that we are in your presence. And now as we open up your word, spirit, would you move? Holy spirit, would you speak? Would you take these feeble words of mine and drive them deep into our hearts and souls. And God, we, we do not want to be the same people we were when we came in. So would you grab our hearts? Would you change us from the inside out so that we could better reflect your son in the world? Let me pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's start off. Let's look at Matthew 16, verse 1 again. We just heard a read, but let's kind of just use that as a starting point. Matthew 16, 1, notice what it says. It says, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees came. We're going to talk about them in just a minute. They came to test him. And look what it says. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. So they show up. Jesus, show us a miracle. Prove you are who all these people are saying you are. And here's what's amazing. For the last 15 chapters in Matthew's gospel, we have seen God revealing himself over and over again in the flesh through the person and work of Jesus. Miracle after miracle, teaching after teaching, day after day, moment by moment in the big things and the seemingly small things, Jesus has been showing his disciples and everyone else, including those Jewish religious leaders, what God is truly like. It was Jesus himself who said in John chapter 14 to Philip, he said, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. If you have seen me, you have seen the father. If you've seen me, this is what God is like because I am 
God. And he said that in response to Philip, who the verse right before says, Lord, show us the Father, show us God, show us what God's like, and it's enough for us. Basically, he was saying, if you would just show us God, then we'll believe, then we'll trust you, then we'll be fully committed to you. And Jesus' response was, if you've seen me, you've seen what God is like, because I am God. And here we are again in Matthew's gospel, people who by now have been confronted by the reality of God in the flesh over and over again, missing the fact that all of God's promises were being fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ right in front of their eyes. And for a number of reasons, they were missing that they had, all that they had been longing for, which was the kingdom of God breaking in right there on earth. And they were missing it because it wasn't coming the ways they believed it would or the ways they believed it should. Now, let's just step back for a second from the passage. And before we get too critical of the disciples, before we get too critical of the, the Sadducees and Pharisees, which it's easy to do as we read the Bible, let's not do that. Let's take a step back and let's find our place in the story. All right. By the way, this is a really, really important part of reading and studying scripture that we are supposed to place ourselves in the story so that we can see what God might be saying to us. So as we're reading, we need to be asking the question, who am I? Who are we in this passage? So just by process of elimination, let, let me help us out. We are not Jesus. Okay. So like some of you, you're like, wait a minute. You didn't see me walk on water on the way to church. Like, like no. None of us are Jesus. Listen, as you read the Bible, we are never Jesus, ever Jesus. He's who we're longing to be like. He's who we want to model our life after. He's who we pursue. But as we read scripture, remember, we are never Jesus. Only Jesus gets to be Jesus. Okay? Now that that's nailed down, so that means we are either the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the disciples, or at different times during the week, you might be one or the other, right? And because of our own sinful brokenness, we often, like the disciples, the religious leaders, miss what God is wanting to do in us, wanting to do through us, wanting to do around us, and what God is doing all around the world. So for the rest of our time together, as I'm up here, I want to point out three ways you can be just like the disciples and the religious leaders in this passage. You don't wanna do this, but I'm gonna teach you how to do it, okay? Or we could put it another way. So if, if, if you're the type that's like, I need a sermon title, here's the sermon title, here it is. How to miss God at work in your life and around the world. All right, I'm gonna give you three ways for you to miss God at work in your own life and God at work in the world, okay? There you go. First one is this. Be someone who is unwilling to be challenged. If you want to miss God at work in your life, if you want to miss out on what God's doing around you, just be someone who's unwilling to be challenged. Challenged in what? Well, pretty much challenged in any way because I've just found out that like God tends to meet me when I'm challenged by people and circumstances. But if you want to be this kind of person, be someone who is unwilling to be challenged. Specifically from the passage, here's what I mean by that. Be someone who is 
unwilling to be challenged on who God is and how God works in the world and the lives of people. Be someone who in your own heart and mind has placed God in a particular type of box and don't allow him to work outside of that. That's a guaranteed way to miss God at work in your life and the world around you. Again, now look at verse one again. It says, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him. That's a really, really important word, okay? That word in the original language has the idea that they weren't really looking for a result, all right? They didn't really care if he did a miracle or not. They already had their minds made up. They already believed he wasn't who he said he was and who everybody else said he was. So they didn't really care about it. If he did do a miracle, they were just gonna turn it on him and try and trap him by what he did, right? So this wasn't some sincere, show us a sign and we'll believe. That's not what it was. It says that they came to test him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. All right, now a really important thing, that word test there uh, is the exact same word that's found in chapter four, verse one, after Jesus had been fasting and praying for 40 days, right? 40 days, 40 nights, Satan shows up and it says that he came to tempt him or test him, it's the exact same word. So they're working with Satan on this, okay? So they, this was not any kind of genuine thing. So, so who are these Pharisees and Sadducees? I think we're probably a little more familiar with the Pharisees, but who, is, who are these people, the Pharisees and Sadducees? Well, they represent the Jewish religious establishment, all right? And here's what's amazing. It is so interesting that these two groups have come together to test Jesus since they could not stand each other, all right? Like you can do all the reading, all the research uh, of the world at that time in Israel, and these two guys were always going at each other. They did not agree with each other, each other theologically. They did not agree with each other politically. But on this one thing, Jesus, they shared their hatred for him. So it shows you the intensity of their hatred. They're coming together to go after Jesus. And we see it all through the gospels. The Jewish religious establishment by, by and large hated and rejected Jesus. Why is that? They were looking for the Messiah. Why couldn't they see that he was the one? There's a number of reasons for that, but for, for us today, it's because he challenged their understanding of God. Like God can't be working this way through somebody like that. They challenged how they understood the Messiah and what he was coming to do and, and when he arrived. Like, this is not what we thought. This is not what we studied. This is not what we've been told for years and years and years. He didn't do what they believed the Messiah would do when he arrived. He didn't say what they believed the Messiah would say. So therefore, because of their preconceived ideas, Jesus could not be the one sent from God to save Israel, let alone save the world. See, they were looking for a militaristic king. This is, I mean, this is how it's done, right? This is how kingdoms get established in the world. We're seeing it every day in the news, violence, bloodshed, power, overthrow. They were looking for that kind of a king. Someone who was gonna, through violence, overthrow the Roman oppression and establish the physical kingdom of God in Israel. And he wasn't, at least the way they understood it, he wasn't doing that. 
didn't look like they thought it would look. It didn't sound like they thought it would. So therefore, they wrote him off. They wrote him off so bad that they even said that he was working with Satan. Do you remember that a few chapters ago, back in chapter 12? If you want to turn there, you can so you can see it yourself. Look at what they accuse him of. Matthew chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 22. Listen to what it says. Then a demon oppressed man, okay, who was blind and mute. So here the demon, the way he was oppressing this, this man was that he, he physically was attacking him. Couldn't speak, couldn't hear, right? Uh, he, this person was brought to Jesus and Jesus healed him so that the man spoke and saw. So it was obvious that a healing took place, that a miracle took place. Demon cast out, the man now healed. And it says that all the people were amazed, of course. And they said, can this be the son of David? In other words, is this the one we've been waiting for? Is this the one who's the Messiah? He's doing what was prophesied the Messiah would do. We just observed this miracle. We just saw this sign. He must be the one. Could this be the one? But look at how the Pharisees responded. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, right? That's another name for Satan. It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. The Pharisees see the miracle take place and they say he's doing it by the power of Satan. Why? Because according to their preconceived ideas of how the Messiah would be, what he would do, how he would work, this cannot be a guy sent from God. So therefore it has to be Satan. They couldn't deny the miracle. They couldn't deny the power, but it couldn't be the power of God. It had to be the power of Satan in their own mind. So how did Jesus respond here to these Sadducees and Pharisees here in Matthew chapter 16? Look at what he says, how he responds. Matthew uh, 16, two to four, look what it says. It says, he answered them, when it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. What he's doing there is using like a colloquial way that people, it's an expression everybody knew in the day, how they could judge what the weather was gonna be like. All right, so you say this, you can see the signs in the sky, which determine how the weather's gonna be. You have that wisdom, you have that insight, you have that understanding. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, he says, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. You can do that. You have the intelligence to do that, but you cannot see that these miracles that I'm performing are obviously signs of the times, meaning that the kingdom of God is breaking in on earth and you're missing it because of your preconceived ideas, because you're not willing to be challenged in any way on, on how you think God is and how God works. And he goes on to say, hey, this is what I think about your, your request for a sign. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign, no miracle will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now, what is that about? Remember Jonah? Oh, we got someone who knows Jonah. All right, awesome. Uh, Jonah, the Old Testament prophet. Remember, go back, read the story yourself. God called Jonah, God's prophet, to go to Nineveh, right? The arch enemy of Israel. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, uh, the enemy of Israel, and told uh, Jonah, his prophet, to go and 
preach and announce that if they don't repent, if they don't uh, confess their sin and turn to God, that there was going to be judgment, that God was going to judge them. Jonah, like the perfect pastor said, heck no. Like, right? Like, I'm not going to get to go preach. Like, why? Because he knew how merciful and gracious and loving and good God is. And he knew that if he showed up, there would be people who would repent. And then therefore God wouldn't judge them. And God, and Jonah wanted God to judge them. Awesome example as a preacher, right? And so what does he do? He runs from God. He runs from where God had called him to go. And, and as you look at the map in the ancient world, he, he tried to go the exact opposite direction in a boat, right? Storm comes, God sends a storm. Everybody's freaking out. Oh, it's Jonah's fault. Okay, it's my fault. Sorry, throw me overboard and the storm will stop. That happens. They throw him overboard. And the the Bible says a a giant large fish comes and swallows him up. I know we can talk science. That would be another sermon. Um, Swallows him up. And it says for three days and three nights, he's in the fish's belly. Three days, three nights. Does that sound familiar? Three days buried deep down in the world, right? In the earth, in the sea. And then at the end of the third day, he comes and he spit back up on shore. He goes into Nineveh, preaches, and there's this massive, huge revival. And God, who's merciful and gracious and loving, doesn't judge. And here, Jesus is saying, that's the only sign, like something like that, the sign of Jonah is the only sign this generation is going to get. What's he talking about? Because Jonah didn't show up and do miracles. All he did was preach. The miracle wasn't something Jonah did. Jonah was the miracle. He was, in a sense, dead for three days and then was resurrected, sent back to life. Jesus is saying, hey, here's the only sign, only miracle you're going to get. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to be dead. And three days later, I'm going to be raised from the dead, just like. Jonah. And here's the sad reality. Even then they won't believe. They actually come up with a lie that they know is not true, that the disciples came and stole the body so nobody else would believe. That's how much they hated Jesus. And that's how much, how, how much they were willing to protect the little box that they had put God in. Massive ramifications for them. Mark's account of this, if you want to write this down, Mark uh, chapter 8, verse 12. When those religious leaders came and and asked for a sign, here's the exact words. Jesus, and he sighed deeply in his spirit. Like most most would be like, done with you. And, And just be like, forget it. But Jesus was grieved in his spirit. He said he sighed, not... Like deep in his soul, he sighed in his spirit. Jesus' heart was grieved. He was heartbroken over the fact that so many of the people he came to love and serve ultimately lay his life down for were rejecting him because he didn't fit into their preconceived ideas of what God was like. So for us, what do, we, what do we do with that? How do we apply that? In what ways are we guilty of this? That's the question we need to ask. Not, I can't believe they didn't, they didn't see it. All those miracles, how'd they not see? Okay, 
That's not what we need to be asking. What we need to be asking is, how does this apply to us? How are we guilty of this? In what ways are we in our own hearts and minds putting God in a box and determining for ourselves what God's like and how he works in our lives and how he works in the world? Let me give you three ways I think we do this. There's plenty others. Let me just give you three. I think we do it in relationships. We miss God working in our lives through being challenged in relationships. What do I mean by that? Well, how many times have you chosen to not be friends with somebody because they don't line up perfectly with your political views? Because they don't line up perfectly with you theologically or you don't have the same hobbies or your age isn't close or maybe your economic level is not the same. Maybe it's based on their marital status or your marital status. Maybe it's their ethnicity. Maybe it's your career. Yeah, I do this. I probably shouldn't hang with people like that. And all the while, you could be missing out on really, really important ways God wants to shape you and transform you through being in relationship with people who do not fit into your perfectly constructed little box. Is that you? Is that me? Number two, I think we do it also in our understanding of the scriptures. And before I get in this, believe me, I love the Bible and I love theology. And, I, and so I'm not belittling that at all. We need to study and we need to know what we believe and why we believe it. Absolutely. But how many times have you heard a pastor or a Christian brother or sister share something from God's word and it's something either you've never heard before or something that's challenging a long held personal belief? What do you do in that moment? How do you respond in those kind of moments? Do you automatically write them off? Or do you ask questions? Do you search the scriptures for yourself to see whether or not what they are saying reflects what's taught in the scriptures? Do you talk to trusted mentors and friends about their thoughts on that particular idea or teaching? Just me personally, I have found in my life, whether I end up changing my opinion or not, it's always been very helpful for me and faith strengthening experience when I've made the choice to dig into the Bible myself and seek guidance from trusted sources rather than just instantly writing people off and writing ideas off because they don't line up with my long held beliefs. I think we do it another way and this, one, this one's painful. I think we do this in trials in our lives. I think we do this with suffering in our lives. I know I do. <laughs> the last couple months, I've caught myself here. For me, trial and suffering, this is often how what I know in my head about God and what I really believe in my heart about God comes to light. It's through trials and suffering where what I know and what I really believe are revealed. See, I can know things about God in my head. I can know facts about God. I can know all the theology. I can, you know, know chapter and verse and point you. I can, I can know those things, information and facts. But do I really believe those things? That comes to light when we're in trials. That comes to light when we're suffering. 
Uh, James chapter one, the half brother of Jesus said this about trials. This is a really well-known passage. He says, count it all joy, all right? That means without mixture of anything else, all right? So just so you know, as I keep going, he's talking about count it all joy, nothing else but joy, my brothers and sisters. When you meet trials, difficulties, sufferings of different various kinds, why? How can we approach trials? How can we approach suffering without anything but joy? It's not humanly possible, by the way, but like, how can we approach that and try to, try to pursue that? How can we do that? Because it has a purpose. God's not just being vindictive. God doesn't hate you. That's not what this is about. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, God's goal for us is that we would more and more and more reflect the character and nature of Jesus in the world. And he also knows one of the primary ways to get us there is through trial and suffering, refining us. Unfortunately, that's one of the primary ways he does it. But some of us have this view of God that God would never let bad things happen to those who love him. See, I can know in my head that God works through difficulties and suffering in my life to transform me more and more to the image of Jesus. I can know that in my head and I can know the facts that he wants to refine me so that I can know and love God more and know and love my neighbor better. But when life gets hard and it seems like everything is falling apart, does what I know about God in my head translate to how I respond to what God is doing in my life? That's a good question to ask. Again, I may know the right things about how God uses trials in the lives of his people, that it's out of a heart of love for his people. But when I'm suffering, when I'm frustrated, when I'm hurting, I can begin to be angry with God and miss out on what he's actually wanting to accomplish in me because I'm so angry at him. I'm angry and frustrated because he's not conforming to how I think he should love me and how I think he should be working in my life. Can anybody relate? So one of the ways we can miss out on how God's working in our lives and the world around us is by being someone who's unwilling to be challenged. Just be that person and you got it. Another way we can do that is this. Be someone who is distracted. Uh-oh. Yikes. Be someone who's distracted. Look at verses five to seven. Be someone who is distracted. When the disciples reach the other side, right? So now they've left the religious leaders. They're heading to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They had forgotten to bring any bread, all right? So it's been a long day, lots of ministry. They're in the boat. They're hungry. They're like, let's eat. Oh, crud, no food. Like, what are we going to do? So all of a sudden, like this natural kind of worldly thing that we all go through is got their attention. They're hungry and they're realizing, man, no food. What are we going to do? And right then, look what Jesus says, because he knows what's going on. He said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Don't you just love Jesus? Like, what are you talking about, dude? We forgot our Lunchables. Like, what are we, 
what are we talking about leaven of the Pharisees? We're hungry, can we get real, right? This is real stuff, that's what we wanna talk about. And it says, and they began discussing it among themselves saying, oh, he knows we brought no bread. Oh no, he's upset about it. <laughs> this is awesome. But Jesus aware of this said, oh, you of little faith. He's not frustrated that they forgot the food. He's frustrated about their lack of faith. Keep going. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Why are you so distracted about something that I can handle like this? I can fix that in a second, even if we don't have bread. You're so distracted by your stomach that you have the potential to miss this eternal truth I'm teaching you. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Why? Because that's their teaching and their teaching can seem innocent. It can seem okay. It can seem small, not that big of a deal, but it's like leaven. It's like yeast that once it gets into a batch of dough, it just spreads and infects the whole thing. Watch your heart, watch your mind. Be careful who you listen to. Listen with discernment. And they were missing that message because they're hungry. Some of you are missing what I'm saying right now because you're hungry, right? Like, come on, dude. Can you get done? I'm ready to go eat. All right, we're almost there. Hang on. Look down at verse 11 and 12. How is it that you fail to understand that I don't speak about bread? Here's the deal. How can you guys be missing this? Every time I talk about leaven, I'm using it metaphorically, Jesus is saying. There's never one time where he talks about leaven and he's not using it metaphorically. They should know this by now. Are you not listening? Are you not paying it? Are you so distracted by all the things going on in the world that you don't know this basic part of my teaching? He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then, Matthew says, they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread. He's not talking about bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. See, here's the deal. They were so distracted by their hunger and the fact that they didn't have anything to eat, which I get, believe me, they were missing what Jesus was trying to teach them. They were missing a word from God because they were distracted by the cares of the world. Important things, it's important to eat, but it's not more important than what God has to say. Jesus himself said, hey, listen, man live, doesn't just live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is our life. Back in chapter 13, verse 22, Jesus said, as he had talked about sowing God's word, throwing it out like seed, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. Oh man, do we not need to hear that? The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the seed of the word like weeds choke seeds. And there's no fruitfulness and no life. That's what can happen in our lives if we're distracted. It makes it so much easier to not hear what God's saying to us, what God's doing in our lives, what God's doing around us, what God's doing in the world. And here's a hard truth, all right? If distraction was a constant danger for the disciples, and it was, how much more is distraction a danger for us in the day and age we're living in? Some of us in the room are having a hard time right now 
because we know that like our, our phone's in our pocket or it's over here and man, I just got to check, did I get a text, right? And you look and boom, you're gone, right? It's, it's, and I'm not judging, I'm saying like that is a struggle for me, just like anybody else. It's hard. So if it was hard for the disciples, how much more for us, right? How much time do we spend on social media, Netflix, Hulu, YouTube, blah, 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 right? How much of our day is filled with activity and busyness? And the opposite of that, how much time do we carve out in our days to spend time with God? Silence and solitude with God and prayer and meditating on scripture and, and all those sort of things when we fill up all our time with all the busyness of the world and life. See, here's the importance of this. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 12 2. Don't be conformed to this world. You're being discipled by the world or you're being discipled by Jesus. Who are you being discipled by? What are you being discipled by? Paul is saying, hey, don't be conformed by the world. The word conformed there is like, don't be pressed into the mold of the world. Don't let the world, through all its means and avenues, shape you from the outside in, man. God's got a way better way, and like a, a, a truly transformative way. He goes on to say, but rather be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Fill your mind with God's word. Don't be distracted by the culture, by the world, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That, that word be transformed is the word we get metamorphosis from. So as a caterpillar turns into a butterfly, that's what he's talking about. But it's transformation from the inside out. That's real. That's lasting. That's eternal. But if, if you want to be someone who misses out on God speaking to you, someone who misses out on what God's up to in the world, all in all the ways that God's currently at work in you, be someone who's distracted. Just be someone who's distracted, and that's all it takes. Last one, here you go. Be someone who is forgetful. If you want this to be true of you, just be someone who's forgetful, right? And all the wives are nudging their husbands right now. Uh, be someone who is forgetful. That's me. Okay, anyway. Verses eight to 10, but Jesus aware of this said, oh, you of little faith. I'm not talking about bread, you're missing the point. And why in the world are you worried about bread, by the way? You of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? And here's the best, check this out. Do you not perceive, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Go back to chapter 14. There it is right before this. Look what I did. I took, you know, a few five loaves and a couple fish and fed 10 to 15,000 people. And you're worried that we don't have any bread for 12 people? Don't you remember? Have you forgotten? Or the seven loaves for the thousand, the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered afterwards after everybody was full? Why are you worried about bread? Here's why, because you forgot. You forgot the kind of God I am. You forgot the kind of leader, Messiah I am. And all it takes to miss out on what God's doing in the world in our lives is to forget. Forget that God is actively involved in his creation, that God is a good God and loves his creation. And because of that, he's, he's proven himself over and over again in history and in our lives and will continue to until we see him face to face. There's a number of times in the Old Testament where God 
uh, commanded his people to erect monuments, memorials, often called stones of remembrance. Why? Because we're forgetful people. There's a reason we do communion every Sunday as the people of God when we gather. Why? Because we're forgetful people and we need to be reminded over and over and over the goodness of God in sending his son to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, laying his life down for his people. We forget that. We forget that God's that good. We forget that God's that loving. And we need to be reminded. We need those physical, tangible Reminders. But thanks be to God for this. Our forgetfulness does not limit God's love or remembrance of us. Isn't that good news? So God's remembrance of me is not based on my remembrance of him. God's love for me is not based on my love for him. The Bible says he loved me first. The only reason I can love him is because he first loved me. We can never be so forgetful of God that he would decide to forget us. Man, that is good news. That's the kind of friend we all need. Our our salvation and right standing with God is not based on how often we think or don't think about God, but rather it's based on the fact that God will never forget about us. That's the good news. All who are in Christ through their faith in him, by his grace poured out on us through Jesus Christ are secure in his love and his memory forever. Now here's where that really gets practical. The more the reality of how loved and remembered we are by God, the more that gets deep down into our hearts, the more we don't want to be the kind of people who are willing, who, who aren't willing to be challenged. The more we don't want to be the kind of people who live distracted lives, and we definitely don't want to be the kind of people who forget about all the ways that God has and is and will continue to love and care for us in this life and the life to come. See, people like that will truly be what Jesus said we are in Matthew 5, the salt and the light of the world for the glory of God and the good of the world. Let Park Church be that kind of church. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's living and active and it will not return to you empty or void without accomplishing your good work. And so God, may we be your good work today. May you do a work on our hearts and our lives, change us, transform us from the inside out by the power of your word and the power of your spirit, taking that word and driving it deep, deep, deep into our hearts and our souls. God, we don't wanna be a forgetful people. We don't wanna be a distracted people. We don't wanna be the kind of people who are not willing to be challenged by you. So God, soften our hearts. Praise in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.